This is an ABC podcast. It's September 1944. The Allied forces liberate most of Belgium. The war is over, but not for everyone. An estimated 100,000 Belgians are accused of collaborating with Nazi Germany. Hello, Kirsty Melville here, and welcome to the History Listen. Peter Lennertz grew up in the province of Limburg in the northeast of Belgium, close to Holland and Germany. So close that the local dialects sound like German. Peter has always known that one side of his family was on the wrong side. He never knew any details. He just knew the stories his grandmother told him. I was only a child, 13, 14 years old. But the Gestapo had rounded up three young men out the back where we lived, and so people were angry with us. But we weren't to blame. Those three young men, they were shot and killed, so I can understand. I can, I can understand. Peter spent the last two years trying to untangle his grandmother's memories and understand how somehow those dark days in September 1944 still resonate 75 years later. My aunt went to church every day, and on her way she'd pass our house, and if I happened to be outside at the water well, she'd start muttering from about 100 metres away, you dirty black dog, you dirty Dirty. black. Dat, uh, dat Hitler pas in 32 aan de macht is gekomen. 32? Ik denk het ja, wel. Ja, dat ja. kan zijn. Dus... Niet 31, maar 32. Ja. Oh, wel, maar dan was ik nog maar een jaar. Hè? Ja. That's my grandmother. A couple of years ago in Belgium. She's 88. Twice my age. She has a name. But to me, she's Oma. There's a comfort and warmth to the quiet of Oma's house. We're in her sunroom, a cup of coffee, and local blackberry pie. They came to our house and dragged us out of bed and asked for Paul and said, Tell us where he is, who will set the house on fire. So Paul came out of hiding and they took him and beat him up so badly that I thought, Jesus had a hard time, but so did my brother. They took him into town. Took my mother too, so I was all alone. I was 13 years old. Someone came and stole one of our pigs, slaughtered it and took it away. Then my mother came home. But they kept Paul and put a rope around his neck and dragged him through town so everyone could hit him and kick him, could do whatever they wanted to him. This went on for two days. 
I didn't see any of this. One of our neighbours did. He went home and said to his father, if you don't go and help Paul, he will be dead tomorrow. Oma always chokes up when she remembers this night 75 years ago. And I've always known that Oma's family was black, not for the color of their skin, but for the color of the uniforms they wore during the war. But why was Paul nearly killed? And what about Oma's other brother, Bert, who volunteered and fought for Nazi Germany in the horrors of the Eastern Front? Oma doesn't know, because she was just a child. So armed with but a computer connected to the internet, I've traveled back to the dying days of the war in Limburg, Belgium, and further east to the Blue Hills in Estonia, where Oma's brother Bert fought in vain against an unstoppable Russian juggernaut. But throughout all this, I've always come back to Oma, my grandmother. Yeah, and that hoort je dan allemaal wel allemaal. Maar blijft toch veel van Oma. So yes, I, I would hear things. As a child, you do hear things, and a, a lot of it stays with you, keeps resonating. Polen hat heute Nacht zum ersten Mal auf unserem eigenen Territorium auch mit bereits regulären Soldaten geschossen. Seit 5.45 September 1939, Nazi Germany invades Poland uh, and all of a sudden the, the continent is, is, is plunged into war. We have a grave announcement to make to the population. Last night, Germany launched an attack on Holland and some airfields in Belgium. We cannot state with certainty whether these are simply meant to scare us or whether a true attack on Belgium has begun. We ask our listeners to keep their radios on all day. The Germans arrived in their sidecars. There was a road going through the woods, a dirt road. And they'd arrive on their motorcycles and sidecars and horses. And if their horse was struggling, they'd just take another one from a farmer and leave the old one behind. That happened to our neighbor. I remember that very clearly. And I remember going to the baker and seeing all these German soldiers walking through the town. I was a child, you know, only nine years old, so you just walk past them. No one stood in their way. It was peaceful. I wasn't afraid. At the start of the war, I wasn't afraid. But things quickly changed during the occupation, as British historian Jonathan Trigg explains. So. The Germans decided to form a series of military units that would join their own armed forces and they divided Europe along racial lines. Those countries that in the Nazi view were fellow Aryans, um, you know, Norway, Denmark, the Netherlands and specifically the Flemish half of Belgium, they were fellow Aryans. 
they were allowed to join the SS and specifically the armed or Waffen SS. Uh, so each of those countries had a national legion set up under the, the auspices of local far-right parties and in the Flemish half of Belgium, specifically around a party called the VNV. They were a nationalist party, but, but far-right. They had a, a large support base and they were pro-Roman Catholic Church. Anti-Semitism was part of their makeup, but wasn't a dominant. The, the, the dominant strand in all VNV policies was an independent Flanders. That's what they wanted. And early on in the war, the VNV decided to actively collaborate with Nazi Germany. But as Belgian historian Frank Seberecht says... At the same time, there was a lot of resistance with clandestine press, escape lines, sabotage and attacks on Germans and collaborators. And especially in Limburg, tensions between these two sides, the whites and the blacks, escalate as the war progresses. Bad things happen in times of war. Especially with families that are fighting. I remember what happened to one of my uncles. One day, this man from the Legion, he was visiting friends, and my uncle happened to pass by their house. And this Legion man gets up, storms out the door, and shoots my uncle. Because he was a white, because he was with the resistance. And I also remember this other man in the next town. He supported the Flemish cause and probably a bit more. He was shot at the beginning of the war. The Nazis executed the suspects. But when they told his wife, she said, well, that doesn't bring my husband back, does it? I was like that answer. And even though most Belgians don't choose a side, Oma's family does. My brother Bert was at the front in Russia, and so we'd receive food stamps. Black stamps, they were called, so we could buy more food. And in school we were told that our brothers were heroes because they were going east to fight communism. When Bert's wife died, my grandmother took him in. So I'd see my great uncle whenever I visited her. He's from that generation that wore their pants high up over their belly buttons. He just sat there and barely spoke and had bacon for breakfast seven days a week. My grandmother tells me that he's 11 years older than her and that she has a picture of him in his SS uniform. So where do I go now? How do I find out more when I'm on the other side of the world? Okay, 502,000 results in 0.52 seconds. First couple are genealogy websites. Ah, there he is. Born 15th of September 1920, died 13th of March 2002. His parents, spouse, siblings. There's Paul, of course. The oh, this is his verdict. Court-martial, sentenced to lifelong imprisonment. 
I learned that my great-uncle Bert is what is called an Ostfronter. It is those individuals that fought as part of the German armed forces on the Eastern Front in the former Soviet Union. I start um, reading John's book, Voices of the Flemish Waffen-SS. When I finish it, I contact John. He's intrigued to have an Ostfronter in my family and would like to know his name. Two days later, John replies saying one of his contacts knew my great-uncle pretty well. He's attached a picture of Bert. I shouldn't be surprised, but still, I am. I'm even a bit shocked. There he is, my great-uncle in his SS uniform. He looks almost glamorous, like a movie star. The next day, there's another email from John, with pictures of index cards listing, in bullet points, when Bert was born, when he enlisted, which battalion he joined. 30 June 1943, volunteer for Storm Brigade Langemark, August 19. It's all facts and figures, and while they help paint a picture, they won't tell me who he was and why he joined the SS. August 44, promoted to SS Sturmmann and Serbs. In the meantime, I've learned that the National Archives in Brussels have files for everyone convicted of collaborating with Nazi Germany. They have files for Bert and Paul. I pay a fee, hold my breath, and wait. Four days later, I get a link with high-quality scans of every page. Mm, this looks like you'd expect a 75-year-old file to look. 30 pages, yellow, stained, mostly handwritten, frayed at the edges, held in place by sticky tape. First page states his name, birth date and place. On the next page, and scattered throughout his file, are several character assessments written by prison staff. His behaviour in prison is normal. Subject is of simple means, lowly educated and very influenceable. He's of good moral constitution, expresses his regrets about the past and has realised he has acted against the good of the fatherland. And on the third page, a handwritten statement by Bert himself. I went to primary school until I was 14, then spent two years on my parents' farm. From 16 to 20, I worked in the coal mine, got injured in the coal mine in February 1939 and got rejected for the Belgian army because of it. I left for Germany in August 1940, returned from Germany in 1941. Under the influence of the anti-communist propaganda, I volunteered for the Legion, but was rejected. Later, I did go to the Legion, until the capitulation. There's something incredibly sad about this. Lowly educated, rejected, first by the Belgian army and then by the Legion. And it all makes sense, because initially the Nazis would only accept elite soldiers to join the Waffen-SS. But as the war progressed, all they really needed was cannon fodder. I am and have been very disappointed, before and after the capitulation. Let's just say across the whole period, from 1940 till now. I can't help but notice how he uses the word capitulation rather than liberation, which is the word my grandmother uses to describe the end of the war. But then I remind myself that he fought as part of the Waffen-SS until the bitter end. 
The rest of his file consists of medical, work and other records, but also, and I recognize her handwriting immediately, a letter from my grandmother. Governor, I, the undersigned, ask you for permission to visit my brother Bert. Camp E, Block 64. I can't present a police check because I am not yet 16 years of age. There's really only one person who might know more about Bert, and that's John's contact, Luke. Now, Luke seems to be a bit of a confidant for the Ostrunters. Over the last 40 years, he's met a lot of them, and they've shared their stories with him. He doesn't judge them, but simply listens. And he remembers Bert as... He was a quiet type, but he did speak up if he had something to say. I thought he was a very sweet man, but yeah, not very talkative. Also, don't forget those guys, they went through a lot. Just imagine, he volunteers in 1943, sees some serious action at the front for two years, especially in Narva, and then they go back home and are all thrown in jail because they're blacks. So yeah, like Bert, you retreat into yourself. A certain picture emerges, but I stop myself from trying to interpret too much after the fact. Most Ostfronters claim after the war that they were fighting for an independent Flanders. Why that fight then happens 2,000 kilometers away on the Eastern Front, I fail to understand. Other Ostfronters claim it was the Catholic Church that called for them to take up arms against communism. When I ask Luke about Bert's motivations, he points towards his family and friends, who were all supporters of the Flemish cause. John offers a decidedly more simple view. These are primarily young men, and young men, you know, do odd things in the, in the search for adventure and excitement. You know, if you're a 20-year-old Flemish young man living in, in Limburg, you haven't got massive prospects. There's no, no excitement. There's these huge events going on, and you know it, but you're not part of it. And, and the Nazis were brilliant at using, you know, the, the glamour of media um, and, you know, big parades and etc. It's exciting. Come and be a part of it. And Bert went and became a part of it in the Blue Hills of Estonia for the Battle of Narva. And from the safety and comfort of my 21st century life, I wonder, what would it have been like for Bert? He might not have spoken about it, but other people did. Like Bird's commanding officer, whose first-hand witness account I come across in a book some of the Ostrunters published in the 1990s. I also come across a testimony the Belarusian journalist Svetlana Alexievich recorded from a Russian female soldier. And finally, I ask John to tell me what it would have been like, based on the countless interviews he's done. So you're in, a, you're in a trench, you are in a, a hole in the ground, and you live in that hole. If you, if you go above ground, then, then you're a target. Everything is trying to kill you. It was July and summer. Yesterday's gunpowder smoke moved slowly over the destroyed land. The stench stuck to what was left of the trees. Through our binoculars, we saw crowds of soldiers and tanks and artillery getting into position. It became clear that fire and destruction awaited us in the Blue Hills. Early the next morning, 
a deafening noise of tanks and infantry blows our way. The sky throbs, the ground throbs. Your heart seems about to burst. Your skin feels ready to split. I never thought the ground could crackle. Everything crackled. Everything rambled. Now the noise of Russian tanks and the panting, furious roar of the infantry jumping into our trenches. Hand to hand. That is a horror. Not for a human being. They beat, they stab with the bayonet, they strangle each other, they break each other's bones. There is howling, shouting, mourning, and that crunching. Impossible to forget it. The crunching of bones. You hear skull crack, split open. Chers compatriotes, hier on annonçait l'entrée des Dear compatriots, yesterday we announced the arrival of the Allied armies in Belgium, and today we can announce the liberation of Brussels. It's for this moment you have suffered, for every tear, for every drop of blood. Today, your pain is rewarded. Brussels is free. How good is victory? Paul didn't know what to do. He was still wearing his black uniform. The Belgian government in exile in London has prepared for the transition, but... The ministers did not arrive in Belgium until a week after the liberation. In the meantime, members of the resistance, as well as ordinary citizens, ordinary people, had, had taken the law into their own hands. A dying man was lifted by his feet and pulled out of bed, so his head hit the floor. As they dragged him down the stairs, his head bounced from step to step. When they arrived on the ground floor, the man was dead. Paul wanted to run away, and he did, to Holland. But he didn't stay long. He showed up at home again and had to go into hiding, of course. Belgian Radio announces the following warning to collaborators. You can feel the end is near. Where is your manliness now? We will assume for a moment that you won't run away like a rat. It would be futile anyhow, because the Allied occupier in Germany will simply send you back. Therefore, this one piece of advice, as soon as the military might of the Krauts has collapsed, go to the local branch of the independence front of your hometown. They will offer you Schutzhaft, or protective custody, which will protect you from the justified anger of the man in the street. A man was snatched from his bed, and right outside the door, we witnessed one of these so-called interrogations. We could hear cursing, snarling, dragging, and punching sounds. Suddenly, a dull thud, a scream, and the door swings open. The man jumps inside on hands and knees like a cornered animal. He's bleeding from his ears, his hands are swollen, black and blue, his fingers motionless and twisted. And they felt justified, even spurred on by radio broadcasts from London during the war. Nazi Germany had taken control of the Belgian radio waves, so Belgian radio had been broadcasting from the BBC in London. And these Radio Belgium broadcasts would always end with the same promise. And in closing, our slogan, 
Today as a prayer, tomorrow as a whistling whiplash. We'll do our best, and rest assured, we'll get them, the Krauts. My mother went to church every Sunday, and afterwards she'd go to her sister's and they'd have a cup of coffee. She told her sister that Paul had come from Holland. My cousin overheard the conversation. She was dating a resistance man, and so two days later, at night, they came to our house. And thousands of collaborators were arrested and put in temporary camps or prisons. And some of them were mistreated and women often had their hair shaved off. Their houses were looted and uh, their possessions uh, destroyed. I grew up with these images. We all did. And once you've seen them, you can't unsee them. Women tarred with swastikas. Men locked up in empty animal cages in the zoo. The people wanted revenge. And because of a power vacuum, they could. And they did. After two days, Paul was taken to the police station. So I went and visited him. I had to because my mother had trouble walking. And there, in the horse's stables, I saw him. His face was broken, his body bruised and battered, black and blue. He was 18 years old. I will never really know why Paul and Bert collaborated with Nazi Germany. But it's hard to see them as anything more than small and insignificant. Even if my great-uncle Paul never fought or killed anyone, he was still doing the job of a German soldier. And because he was doing it, that German soldier could be employed somewhere else in the Nazi killing machine. The same killing machine that my great-uncle Bert was part of. And Bert clearly did fight. And paid the price. They both did. Was it just? Or was it Victor's justice? Context is everything. And there was nothing to talk about. What we made made, that we never knew. That was not asked. No one ever asked. No one ever spoke about. Everything we lived through. An estimated 300,000 Belgians have stories like my grandmother's. They are the children of the collaboration. Innocent themselves, but guilty by association. They are forever tainted black, tarred for life, for something they were often too young to understand. You dirty black dog. You dirty black dog. When I first ask Oma's permission to make this work, she wants to know whether I'll use her name. And I remember walking through town with her maybe ten years ago, and suddenly Oma decides to cross the street. When I ask her why, she says that the person that was coming towards us, for years after the war, 
He'd throw rocks at her whenever she walked the cow back from the field. Want ik heb het nu nog dikwijls met mijn vriendin daarover dat wij eigenlijk uh, dat allemaal meegemaakt hebben en dat er nooit iemand naar ons geluisterd heeft en dat wij ook niks gezegd hebben. I often talk to my friend now about those days and how no one ever listened to us and how we never spoke up either. Want wij, het was ook nog eens vroeger zo. Weet jij niks van? Kent er niks van? Zwijg maar. Yeah. Ja, zo was dat vroeger. But that's how it was. They'd say, you don't know anything. So just be quiet. Just be quiet. Just be quiet. Just be quiet. Resonate was written and produced by Peter Lennitz. The supervising producer was Claudia Taranto. And the sound engineer was Hamish Camilleri. It was produced with the assistance of the Tony Barrell Fellowship. For a full list of credits, just head to the History Listen website. I'm Kirsty Melville, and I'll see you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.